Well, today is Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day. I did not feel the love there. I see a little bit of red. Probably saw more Broncos orange last week than we did red this morning. What's up with that? I have to say, growing up as a young boy, Valentine's Day was always one of the most awkward days. I mean, you had to buy or make those cards for everyone, even the girls. Yuck. You had to put those little heart-shaped candies in them with such meaningful messages as soulmate, hug me, my personal favorite, sweet love. What 12-year-old wants to give a girl that? I don't think so. I absolutely dreaded Valentine's Day. And then it happened. I grew up. I'll never forget her name. Karen. (laughs) Rolls off the tongue. She was the first girl... I had ever given a Valentine's Day card to that I actually meant. I even hand-selected the heart-shaped candies to her. I remember making this card by hand. No store-bought candy card for my woman, Karen. It was beautiful. Wrote a special message in it just to communicate my true feelings for her. It went something like this. Karen, will you be my valentine? Question mark, question mark, question mark. I even think I put the little hearts as the little dots underneath. Love, Chris. I know, deep. (laughs) When it finally came time for us to hand deliver our our Valentine's Day cards to our entire class. My palms were sweating. My heart was beating so hard, it felt like it was going to leap out of my chest. The moment came. I saw her across the room, began to walk with my card outstretched. We made eye contact, which in those days was a little bit more like this. Just about everyone was taller than me those days. She took the card from my outstretched hand. And just as I was about to to truly express just how much Karen meant to me, she took my card, threw it in the pile with all the other cards, turned around and walked away, along with all my hopes and dreams. (laughs) Broken heart. Anyone have any similar experiences? Valentine's Day, growing up, can be a challenge. Well, today, Valentine's Day has not only become bigger, and it is getting bigger each year, isn't it? I mean, even in Albania now, Valentine's Day is everywhere. It is amazing. But I think Valentine's Day also provides a window for us to peer into the heart of America. Because in many ways, modern American culture has been shaped by the concepts of self-love and instant gratification. 
We want it. We want it now. It's instant. And it's all about getting. Not giving, but getting. This is communicated to us, isn't it? Through our commercials, through our entertainment, movies, television, all the marketing. Love has been redefined, repackaged, and delivered as the relentless pursuit of self-pleasure and satisfaction because, after all, you deserve it. This year, it's estimated Americans will spend just under $20 billion this weekend. That's right, billion. That is a lot of chocolate. Now, don't get me wrong. This is not about to become an anti-Valentine's Day message. Otherwise, I would be walking home. (laughs) It's not. Don't worry. Nor am I against giving your special someone something special. Guys, give your wife something special. Ladies, can I get an amen? Amen. Absolutely. Oh, a little hand? Yeah, a little hand clap there. Nice. (laughs) However, what I am concerned about, what I do want to talk about this morning, is the way that the American church has allowed the world and its self-gratifying values to redefine and reshape love into its own image. Again, I'm just thinking of Romans 12 too. Do not be what? Conformed to this world. Don't allow the world to reshape and mold what love is into its own image, but what? Be transformed. How? By the renewing of the mind. The Word of God needs to define what love is. And does the Word of God define love? Absolutely. In fact, the Word became flesh and became love. We just sang about it, didn't we? The Bible defines love in terms of giving. Do you guys know that verse, John 3.16? What does it say? Say it with me, church. For God so loved the world that he... What? You didn't say it like you meant it. What did he do? He gave. He gave. Did God have to give? I mean, are you just that lovely? That wonderful, that beautiful, perfect, deserving? For God to send his one-of-a-kind, unique, beloved son to die a death that wasn't his to die because you're just that great? No, God chose to send his love. And how did Christ love the church according to Ephesians 5? To death. He loved us literally to death. See, biblical love is a choice. It's a choice to give. And we as Christians have been commanded to love, haven't we? This is important. Where have we been commanded to love? Maybe you know it as the greatest commandment. Matthew chapter 22, verse 37. What does it say? Love the Lord your God, how? With all your heart, all your mind, all your body, all your soul, all your strength, your everything. And then the second greatest commandment? To love your neighbor. To love your neighbor as yourself. We have this command to love God, to love others. 
And in a country where people seem to be very consumed with self-love, with personal happiness, at times motivated by greed and lust and selfishness, shouldn't those redeemed by Christ be different? Shouldn't we? Sadly, a brief study of recent church history shows that as America has become more wealthy, more powerful, the spiritual health of the church here in evangelical America is declining. Because the reality is, the more things that we have to love in this world, what happens to our love for God? Declines. Statistics show that the more money we make, the less we give back to God. In fact, I just did a study on finances here in the adult equipping class, and I realized one of the statistics is that the average evangelical Protestant American gives about $17 to God. It's lunch at Chick-fil-A. Each year we are sending fewer and fewer missionaries to reach the nations. Maybe nobody told me. I mean, has the Great Commission been fulfilled? Is it that we don't have money? Is it that we don't have enough churches to send missionaries? Why are we sending fewer and fewer missionaries? Why? Because we've lost our first love. Do we care about the nations? And we're losing the art of biblical Christ-centered preaching, replacing it with man-centered, humorous fluff pieces designed to make people feel happy about themselves. If you doubt me, just turn on cable television and look at some of the messages that are being proclaimed in the name of Jesus Christ. It's not really about God. It's about making people feel good. Thankfully, that's not the case here. And I know there are other churches where that's not the case, but this seems to be a trend. And all the while, the commitment level within the church is a bit like an American football game. We saw this last week. You have 22 players on the field desperately in need of rest and 80,000 fans in the stadium desperately in need of what? Exercise. (laughs) How do we get those people off the stadium, off the seats, and down into the action, into the game. Because fewer and fewer people are committed to the local church, to using their gifts and their talents to the glory of God. Well, perhaps the American dream has at times distracted us from prioritizing Christ, serving His church and His mission. Perhaps that's true. So in a world consumed with loving self How can we stay committed to loving God? Because again, are you going to be able to fulfill the second greatest commandment to love others if you're not first loving Him with everything? No. So how can we stay committed to loving God so that we might in turn be servants of unconditional love toward one another? Well, in Galatians 5.13, the Apostle Paul gives us or guides us on a path that starts with freedom from sin and ends with sacrificial love. And so today, this morning, I hope to encourage us all to be servants of unconditional love, loving Christ so that we might in turn love God, love others, and serve others. This morning, we're going to examine three motivations, three motivations that drive us to be servants of unconditional love. Hopefully, you have a handout. You see those there, the call the caution, 
the command. I have been trained and discipled by my leader in Ken Ramey. Notice they all start with C. Thank you, Ken. Three motivations that drive us to be servants of unconditional love. Let's start with the call. First, let me read Galatians 5.13 for us. Galatians 5.13. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. The first part of this passage we see, the call. Paul explains our calling. And the call motivates us to remember our position and our purpose. Notice Paul begins with this word, for. For is a continuation of verses 1 to 12. In fact, look back at verse 1, Galatians 5, 1. Paul says, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm. Do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. And then in verse 7, he gives us further evidence of what's going on in the church at Galatia. He says, you are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Well, on your handout, you have a very lengthy theme explaining what was going on in the church at that time. You can read that at your leisure. Let me give you a short version. Paul is writing this letter to the Christians in Galatia because some false teachers began preaching a different gospel message. Again, Paul talks about that in Galatians 1.7. He says, which is not really another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. They're preaching some message which is actually distorting and changing the gospel message. Is that ever good? Never good. They're distorting it. What was the contents of this message? We'll look at chapter 2, verse 4. It was because of the false brethren who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus in order to bring us into bondage. Well, what is this bondage he's talking about? Look at verse 16. He says, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Are you starting to pick up what Paul is concerned about? The Judaizers were teaching that in order for you to be truly justified, truly a child of God, you had to put your faith in Jesus, plus follow the Mosaic law, the regulations, the ceremonies. In fact, he was telling Gentiles, they were telling Gentiles, you even had to be circumcised. If you want to be a Christian, you have to do all of these things. And so even the truly saved believers were becoming confused by this false message They started adding works to their faith in Christ. It's legalism. You've heard that term. Legalism is the belief that my ability to obey God somehow makes me right with God. That that as I do what God commands me to do, and and to the nth degree, God is satisfied in me and therefore justifies me, not based on the work of Christ, but Jesus plus my good works. And I got to tell you, as a kid, 
I was a professional legalist. I mean, some of you know I grew up uh, at a large church in Los Angeles, California, where I was taught the Word of God every week. I knew what the Word of God said. I kept it. I mean, I was so righteous on the outside, they even took my picture and put it on the welcome card that they gave to people because I was the kid they always brought up in front in the children's ministry to pray because I was righteous. I wasn't even a Christian. It's legalism. That provides the context for this verse, helps us understand what Paul is really talking about. So Paul says, back to our text, in Galatians 5.13, he says, For you were called to freedom, brethren. Called. Well, who is doing the calling? Is Paul calling them? Is this a, a, a call from the church? No, in fact, God is the one who does this call. Look back at Galatians 1.6. Galatians 1.6. I'm amazed that you are so quickly de- deserting Him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Then in verse 15. But when he who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace was pleased. Again, who is this? It's God. Turn over to Ephesians. Ephesians 4, verse 1. Ephesians 4, verse 1. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Just to drive this point home, 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 to 14. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. And it was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We could look at 2 Timothy 1, verse 8, 1 Peter 1, 15, and on and on and on. The New Testament is full of these kind of texts. And the call spoken of throughout the New Testament epistles is an effectual call to salvation offered by no one less but God himself. It's a call to be saved. But back in our text in Galatians 5.13, notice Paul says, you were called to freedom, brothers. Well, freedom from what? What is the freedom that, that Paul is talking about? Let me ask you a question. What is the condition of every person, the condition of their heart, of every person who rejects Christ in the gospel? What is it? Dead. Not partly alive, not somewhat able to please God or obey God. It's dead. Because what does Ephesians 2 say? You were, he's talking to Christians, you were pre-gospel, pre-salvation, pre-faith in Christ. You were dead in your transgressions, in your sins. It's death. And Romans 6.17 describes the unbeliever 
as a slave, a slave not of righteousness, but of what? Sin. A slave to impurity, to lawlessness, to selfishness. You know, I don't normally cry. I used to be a cop in Los Angeles. My girls were like, Dad, how come you never cry? I'm like, I'm a man. <laughs> That's not true. Real men do cry at the appropriate time. There's one movie that made me cry. There's a couple. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you about those. A movie about slavery. It was a movie called Amistad. The ship called Amistad goes to Cuba, picks up slaves, and is bringing these slaves from Cuba back to America to be sold. It's a very graphic, I mean, I think that's why it was rated R, because of the graphic nature of, of the slavery. And I remember watching that and, and seeing the shackles and the chains on these slaves they went where they were told to go. They ate what they were given. They didn't complain. They were mistreated, mishandled, because they were slaves. It just broke me to tears, realizing that we had done that to people. But as I read through the book of Romans, I recognize that that is what happens in the heart of an unbeliever. They are enslaved, shackled, not to Christ, but to sin, to fulfill the selfish and sinful desires of their flesh. Can an unbeliever say no to sin? No. Now, can an unbeliever do nice things, give money to charity? Absolutely. But even that action externally is driven by what? something on the inside. There's something motivating them to do what they do. And the Word of God says you can't have two masters. Matthew 6, 24, for either you will love the one and what? Hate the other, or you will be devoted to this one and what? Despise the other. And then Christ says you cannot love God and mammon, money, wealth. And what is he really saying? You can't love God and you. An unbeliever is enslaved to their sin. But as Christians, the God who calls us also provides freedom for us in Christ. Again, we know this. He's talking to brethren. You were called to freedom, brethren, brothers, sisters in Christ, Christians. To freedom you were called. The chains have come off at the moment a person repents of their sin and puts their faith in Jesus Christ alone. We are not slaves to sin. Who we are slaves to? God. Righteousness. The Lord. Let me develop this for us. When a person hears the gospel message and receives Christ as their Lord and Savior, he is free from the guilt of sin because he's experienced God's forgiveness. There is no guilt. There is no shame. Why? Because it was all put on Jesus. 
He's free from the penalty of sin. Why? Because Christ's death took our punishment, took the death that we deserve, and it went on Him. But He is also free from the power of sin in His daily life. Why? Because when Jesus went back up to heaven, who did He send down? The Holy Spirit. To seal us in Christ to illuminate the Word of God so that we wouldn't not only understand it, but that we would be able to apply it and live it and be sanctified. A big fancy word which simply means we become more like Jesus in the way we think, in the way we speak, and in the things that we do. The power of sin, you're free from it. He's regenerated, a new creature, enslaved to righteousness resulting in sanctification. That's why Paul, in just a few verses later, look at Galatians 5.16. That's why he can say this. He can say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. If you submit to the Spirit in your life, you don't have to do that. You don't have to go back and take the shackles of sin and put them back on your feet and your hands. You're free. Does that stir your heart? This is the heart of the gospel. We're free. We can say no to sin as Christians and yes to God. Why? Because Romans 6, 6 reminds us our old self was crucified with him, with Christ, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. So this calling through faith in Christ is the freedom to live our life for God, to say no to self and sin and say yes to Him. And this is important because without this freedom in Christ, we cannot truly serve one another. We can't be servants of unconditional love. Why not? Turn with me to Romans 6. Again, I've been quoting a lot of these verses. Let's look at Romans 6, verse 16 together. Romans 6, 16. Romans 6.16, do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of what? Righteousness. Notice verse 16. There's two options. Paul says, either you are going to be a slave to sin or what? Either this, there's only two doors. Door number one or door number two. All of us in this room have gone through one of those doors. You are either a slave to your sin or a slave to Christ. And if we are not free from our sin, can we really love others in the way that God intended? See, I can't truly selflessly love my wife, my kids, the person who cuts me off in 1097 when I'm taking my kids to school. I can't love them if I'm enslaved to my own sin. 
Because when people offend me or let me down or don't meet my expectations, what's my response? It's about me. You didn't make me happy. Therefore, you are not my friend. No heart-shaped candies for you. Maybe I'll give you the one that says, kick me. I don't know, do they have those? Maybe, maybe not. Without this freedom in Christ, the result of being enslaved to my selfish, sinful flesh is actually found back in Galatians 5. Look there. Galatians 5, verse 19. Again, this is all in the same chapter of our verse. What does it look like when we are enslaved to our sin? Paul gives us a picture in verse 19, Galatians 5. He says, now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarned you, just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Do you feel the love? Do you see love in those verses? The answer is yes. But love of who? Love of self. There is love there, but it's not an otherness love. It's not a God word love. It's a love of me. Therefore, whatever I want, I will take, I will get, no matter the cost. See, our call motivates us to remember our position in Christ. I am not a slave to sin. But it also reminds me the purpose of my freedom. Well, along with the reminder of the Christian's calling to freedom in Christ, Paul gives us a second motivation, driving us to be servants of unconditional love. We go from the call to the caution. The caution. And this motivates us to examine our life, to examine for the purpose of pursuing purity. Look at the middle part of verse 13, back in Galatians 5. He says, Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. You see, Paul cautions us that our freedom in Christ can very quickly turn into freedom to live selfishly. This is a warning. Paul is saying, watch out. Be careful. Some of you know that back in 2008, my daughter Whitney got a stick in her eye. We're living in Albania. They didn't have the medical care that we needed, so we ended up driving to Greece 17 times to get this scan done to see if her eye was healing properly. 17 times going to Greece. Now when we have to go to Greece, my kids are like, please don't take me to Greece. I just want to stay home. You know, you're like, I've always wanted to go to Greece. Well, next time you can go. <laughs> 17 times driving, seven to eight hours each way. One particular part of this road is this narrow, windy, mountainous road. Well, one year, or one time during this year, we had to go in the winter. The roads were icy, barely enough room for two cars. Fog is covering the road. I have never prayed so much in my life is when I was driving on that road thinking I was going to die at every corner. Because again, it's almost like the Albanians didn't really care about the ice on the road or the fog. They were driving as if it was a nice summer sunny day. Woohoo! I thought we were going to die. 
thankfully, some very considerate Albanians put something along the side of the road. Signs. Caution signs. Slow down. Windy road. Rocks are falling. I never saw any rocks falling, but I'm sure glad that they warned me about it. Narrow bridge. Bridge will ice. (laughs) What's the point of a caution sign? Warn you. Is it just to give you information? Again, if that's all the purpose of a caution is just to give you information, you're like, oh, great, I should slow down. There's a really, really narrow turn coming up. 180 degrees, and I keep barreling at 70 miles an hour, what's going to happen? Shattered glass, twisted metal, flames, not good. If we ignore the caution, what happens? Pain, suffering, death even. That's the whole point of a warning, is to remind you, don't just understand what the warning is about, Do something. Change your thinking so that you change your behavior. And that's what Paul is doing for us in this middle part of Galatians 5.13. He says this. Here's the warning. Do not turn your freedom. And again, what's the freedom? Freedom from slavery to sin. Freedom to say yes to God, to love God, to love others. He's saying don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. This word opportunity in the Greek was a word that they used often to describe the central base that directed all operations of a a military campaign. We could almost think of it as, as a command station. It's a warning not to allow our Christian liberty, the freedom that we have in Christ, to become a central base to carry out our selfish and sinful desires. And again, if I am using my freedom in Christ to love and serve me, who am I not loving and serving? God and you. That's the point. So Paul says, don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. Now, flesh here doesn't specifically refer to our physical body here. I think what Paul is saying is is rather the sinful, self-focused desires. He's focused on the inside. This is our self-will. Now, certainly that can affect the outside. It can affect our, our physical body. But when Paul is talking about the flesh, he's talking about our will, our desires. Look with me at Galatians 5, 16 to 17. Again, Paul says, I walk... But I say, walk by the Spirit, you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. Even as Christians, we still have a struggle to love self, to put self over God and others. And so Paul is saying, look, you don't have to say yes to sin. You can say no but it involves submitting yourself to the Spirit who is in you. Have you ever been about to do something and all of a sudden it popped into your head, I don't know if I should be doing this. Anybody can relate to that? I don't know if I should drive through this very, very quickly turning yellow to red light. I don't know. What is that? Maybe it's your wife. 
Don't do it. Call her the Holy Ghost. What is it? A word, a verse pops into your mind. The truth of God's word. Somebody asks you a question and you're like, wow, if I tell them the truth, it's going to make me look really bad. And then all of a sudden a verse pops into your head. Speak the truth. Speak the truth. Ephesians 4.25. That's the spirit of God reminding you the word of God so that in that moment when you're tempted to carry out the desires of the flesh, what do you do? You're reminded, I can say no. I can submit to the Spirit and the Word of God in me and say yes to Christ. Because again, what happens is, verses 19 to 21, if we give in to the flesh, that's what comes out. But instead, we have to follow Peter's exhortation, 1 Peter 2, 16. 1 Peter 2, 16. He says, act as free men. Do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Let me just give you one example of how we can turn our freedom in Christ into an opportunity for the flesh. And again, this is just something I struggle with, so I'm going to share it with you. Does the Bible specifically tell us what movies we can see? Does it say PG-13 is fine for thee, but anything more, thou art sinning? I don't know why I did that in King James, but uh, there you go. <laughs> Does the Bible say that? Does it give you ratings? I mean, some of you are probably offended that I used an R-rated movie as an illustration in the sermon. I'm probably going to come up to me and write me a letter. That's okay. Please do that. Love to visit with you about that. Does the Bible tell us what movies we should see or not see? It's not a trick question, does it? Not specific movies, but does it give us principles and precepts that should guide us in the kind of movies, the kind of television shows we watch? Okay, you felt a little more confident about that. That's good, we're making progress. Absolutely. Maybe a verse like Psalm 101.3, I shall set no worthless thing before my eyes. Maybe a verse like Philippians 4.8, whatever is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, of good repute, what am I to do with those things? Dwell on them, meditate on them, think on them, which is kind of hard to do when I'm putting filth in my mind. 1 Corinthians 6.12, not all things are profitable, but what does he say? I will not be mastered by anything. I used to love watching Lost. Remember that TV show? It was a long time ago. I was a youth pastor here at Lakeside Bible Church. I would preach in the other building on a Wednesday night. I would tape Lost, and I couldn't wait to finish ministering to your kids so that I could go home and watch Lost. Some would say I was lost without it. I know, that was bad. What was that? Who was mastering who? Yeah, Lost was mastering me. And it wasn't until weeks going into this where I just, one time I was like cutting a student off in the middle of this great spiritual conversation because I'm like, man, I'm not going to have time to watch Lost 
and I'm going to have to go to bed because I have a busy day tomorrow. And so, okay, let's just talk about this later. And then it was like the spirit went... <laughs> Entertainment is mastering me. How about 1 Corinthians 8 9? Don't allow my liberty to become a stumbling block to the weak. Maybe James 4, 17, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. You ever been in a movie theater 20 minutes in and all of a sudden you thought, you know, I probably should get up and walk out. If you don't get up and walk out, what is that? Sin. Do we have principles and precepts from the Word of God that guide us in Christian liberty? Absolutely. Absolutely we do, and they should. But as a believer, by the grace of God, I have the freedom to watch movies. The question is, which movies glorify God? With my time, with my thoughts, the images that I put into my mind, the message of the movie. You realize every TV show, every movie has a message. It's good for us to teach our kids that, isn't it? What am I putting into my head? What is the example I'm setting for others? If I develop a habit of seeing whatever movies I want to, I'm allowing sin, allowing temptation to set up a military base in my heart. I mean, it's bad enough we have to fight temptations on the outside. I was at the Woodlands Mall recently. That place is full of temptation. You've got the ice cream store over here, Victoria's Secret store over there. You know, that's the one we walk by and you're like, I will not look, I will not look. And then the Apple store right down the hall. Thanks, Junior. <laughs> Temptation, billboards, commercials, it's all around us. But now I'm willingly choosing to allow my freedom in Christ as a moviegoer to affect my own personal holiness and purity. And you know what I'm doing? I'm inviting the enemy in. Hey, come on in, have a seat. Let's get cozy. With the roaring lion, seeking him whom he may devour? Yeah. See, but that's not all. Because it's not just the content that I have to be careful about. It's the sheer volume of entertainment that I watch. Again, I don't know about you, but for me, too much entertainment has a way of deadening my passion for Christ time I would have spent reading an edifying book or taking a walk with my wife or kids with some kind of uplifting, edifying conversation, or even sitting on the back porch and just watching the sunset and admiring God's handiwork, giving Him praise, and just meditating on how good my God is. That time is stripped away with mind-numbing, dulling entertainment. I'm not meditating on God. I'm not thinking about His truth, which in turn affects the amount and the type of service that I engage in. And in many ways, this enemy base is much harder to detect, isn't it? It's more subtle. This is why C.S. Lewis points out in his classic work, The Screwtape Letters, and O'Kin has referenced this book a number of times. But C.S. Lewis is right. Satan is far more effective in limiting our usefulness to Christ by slowly and subtly drawing our affections away from Christ to the pleasures of this world. He doesn't have to convince you or try to, try to make you believe that there is no God. God doesn't exist. 
all he's got to do is subtly, step by step, over time, draw your affections from Jesus to the things of this world, many of them within the realm of our Christian liberty, deadening our soul, deadening our passion. And I believe that is what has happened to the American church today, because over time we have become just in love. Our affections have become poured out on the things of this world. Hence those statistics that I opened up with. So obviously we must be careful to use the Word of God as the standard for our personal convictions, just like those lists of verses that I use to help me determine, is this a movie I want to watch? Do I have time? Is this wise? Is this God-honoring? Is this the best use of my time? We should use Scripture for that. And again, it may not be movies for you. Movies is my struggle. Entertainment is my struggle. Maybe for you it's something different this morning. Maybe it's your choice of friends. Maybe it's drinking alcohol. Maybe it's the internet, social media, modesty in clothing, working out excessively. You guys can tell that's my problem. <laughs> I'm sorry, you didn't see that. Did you get it? Maybe it's not working out enough. That's a little more convicting for me. Maybe it's music. Maybe it's the way you spend your money. Whatever we may struggle with, if we submit to the Holy Spirit who lives in us, through prayer, through the Word of God, renewing our mind with truth, we not only have the choice, but we have the ability to honor and obey God through our freedom. Let me ask you, Christian, have you allowed your freedom in Christ to become a staging point for the enemy? The minute I asked that question, what popped into your head? What are you convicted about right now? Have you allowed it to deaden your passion for Jesus, the one who died to set you free from the very thing that you are going back and re-enslaving yourself to. Christ did not die on the cross to give us freedom from sin so that we could do whatever we want to do. You realize that, right? He didn't die on the cross so that you and I can live this happy existence here in America and have a 401k and a, and a camper and, and two and a half kids and a three-car garage, and that's not why Jesus died. He died so that we would be free from our sin, have the hope of heaven motivating and driving us, because this is not our home. We're citizens of another place, he died so that you would take everything God's given you from your health to your time to your treasure to your talents and turn it around and thank God and enjoy it while you have it and turn around and use it for His glory to build up the church and to reach the lost. That's why Christ died. How are you using your freedom? What are you doing with it? Sounds like that's what our students were challenged with last weekend. Praise God. 
So we have to find this biblical balance with our Christian liberty so that we don't serve ourselves. And on one side, you don't want to become the legalist, setting up extra rules, trying to please God, trying to earn His favor and His grace. But the other side is equally bad, equally sinful. It's Christian liberty. It's the libertarian view. Hipsters for Jesus. You know that crowd? This is getting big today. Where they just celebrate freedom. It's almost like, where is Jesus in all of that? Did you remember that verse? Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness? Forgot that verse. They just do whatever they want to the glory of God. And somewhere between these two extremes, you guys realize balance is that moment when you pass from one extreme to the next, right? <laughs> it's always a fight, isn't it? But we have to find that balance where Christ is. This caution motivates us to examine our life, to use our freedom to pursue purity. Well, Paul has reminded us of our call. He's given us the caution, but he ends with the command. The command motivates us to practice loving service. Notice what he says at the end of verse 13. He says, but through love, serve one another. And again, points one and two build to this, don't they? If you have a right understanding of your calling and you are being cautious in not allowing your freedom to become a base of operations for the enemy, what will happen? I don't think we should be told, that, oh, you have to love, you have to serve. Because if I'm really loving Christ with everything, you can't stop me. It's going to come out. Because as I grow to love Christ and adore Him and, and remember all that He's done for me, what's going to happen in my life? It's going to come out. It's like gushing and overflowing and spilling. And so when my wife asks me something I don't really want to do, I'm thinking about what Jesus did for me, and I'm motivated in that moment to put her first, to put my kids first, to put that person who cuts me off on 1097 first. Boy, you guys are getting a sense of what I struggle with. Notice Paul says, but. He's setting up a comparison. He's saying, don't do this. Don't allow your freedom to become an opportunity for the flesh, but do this. You're thinking, well, finally, we're going to talk about being a servant. And the imperative command is serve. But you realize that's not the key verse or the key uh, word in this phrase. It's love. Why? Why do I say that? Because it's possible to serve someone, but from a selfish motivation. As I mentioned earlier, today is Valentine's Day. Did uh, any of you husbands forget? You're not going to admit that. Because it's Valentine's Day, what must I do for my wife? Men, help me out. What do I have to do? Flowers? Probably a good idea. Take a shower? Yeah, that's good. Put on some clean socks? Get her a card? Oh, you mean I have to actually write something in it? Oh, okay, I'll do that. Take her out to a nice meal. Maybe I'll give her that really special Santa Claus that I've been saving up for myself. You know, got to give her a little chocolate. That's very meaningful. Now, what possible motivations might I have for doing some of these nice things for my wife? Duty. I have to. It's Valentine's Day. After all, she is my wife. How about pride? 
Everyone else is doing it. I mean, have you heard what Tyler is doing for Amy? What in the world? Tyler is like way up here and I'm way up here. It shouldn't be that way. It should be Tyler, Chris. Pride can motivate us to do the right thing on the outside. How about obligation? Well, I figure I got to tell my wife I love her at least once a year. I'm obligated. Here, honey, I got these flowers. It's my duty. It's my obligation. Yeah, that's nice. Maybe it's the hope of receiving something in return. Maybe she'll let me buy that brand new weed whacker I've had my eye on. I'm going to go whack me some weeds. See, it's not simply the action of serving that it's important. It's why we do it. It's why we do it. It's my motive behind my actions that enables me to truly, lovingly serve others. And again, what's my example? What's my example of love? How can I be unconditional in love toward my wife, toward you, toward my kids, toward others? I have to follow something. Who is that example? It's Christ. How did Christ love us? Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were still, what, sinners, he demonstrated his love was visible. While we were still sinners, he loved us in spite of our faults. How about Ephesians 5, 25? Christ died for us. His love was sacrificial. It was selfless. What about Romans 8, 39? What can separate us from the love of God? Nothing. It's unceasing. What about 1 John 4.19? We love because, what? He loved us first. He didn't wait. He didn't wait till we were more lovable. He didn't wait till we were ready. He didn't wait until we said, okay, God, I'm ready to love you now. And he said, okay, I'll love you. He loved us first. Is that the way you love others? That's the model. That's the example. God loved me first. Our motivation is essential. And so Paul says, through love, serve one another. This word serve literally means to perform the duties of a slave. Doulos is the noun form. Be a slave. Enslave yourself to meeting the needs and caring for others first. That's what he's saying. Be other-focused. See, Christians are commanded to serve one another, motivated by Christ's love. You know, maybe this morning you realize your life is not characterized by this kind of love. Maybe as I read those verses, 19, 20, 21, you say, you know, this is kind of more of my life. The deeds of the flesh. Well, I am here to tell you the Word of God has hope for you this morning. You don't have to stay enslaved to loving and serving you. Because happiness, the blessing that comes from God, comes through repentance and faith. And this morning, the shackles can come off. You can be done with slavery to self by repenting, turning from your sin, acknowledging that you are a sinner, and asking God for forgiveness. And then in turn, putting your faith in Jesus Christ, who he was and what he did on the cross for you. Because this is the power of the gospel through the love of Christ. You have a handout on your handout on the back there's a quote by Warren Wiersbe. I'm going to read it for you. Warren says, The amazing thing about love is that it takes the place of all the laws God ever gave. 
Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself solves every problem in human relations. If you love people because you love Christ, you will not steal from them, lie about them, envy them, or try in any way to hurt them. Love in the heart is God's substitute for laws and threats. Aren't you glad that's true? Amen and amen. That's why Paul in verse 14 says, the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He's quoting the second greatest commandment. It's love. If I'm loving God, I'm going to obey Him. And when the love of Christ is motivating me, then I will do 1 Peter 4.8. Be fervent in my love. Let love cover a multitude. You are going to offend me. People are going to do things. They're going to fail me. They're not going to meet my expectations. But I will let love cover that because the love of Christ controls me. I will do Colossians 3.13. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. When someone hurts me or sins against me, I'm not going to hold it over them. I'm going to be willing to forgive that person who cut me off on on the freeway because Christ forgave me. I am going to do Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, do what? Regard one another how is more important. I'm not going to look out for my own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Why am I going to put you first? Because God put me first. Christ put me first when he chose to die in my place. Ephesians 4.29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only one that is edifying. It gives grace for the need of the moment. This kind of love, focus on the love of God, changes how I speak. And so when the people gather together around the water cooler, do we still have water coolers? I don't know. You don't understand what I mean by that. They get together in their little circle and they start gossiping. They start talking about the office nerd. My wholesome speech edifies because the love of Christ is controlling me. It changes the way I speak. 1 John three seventeen. I see a brother who is in need. I have the world's goods and the love of Christ compels me to give. It affects the way I use my things. The love of Christ. Service. It may be even using my lawnmower to mow someone's lawn. Whatever that would look like. 1 John 3.18, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. It's not enough just to say it or to talk about it. Do something. Act upon it. Because if you want to use your freedom for Christ for the purpose of serving others through love, You have to honestly examine your priorities. How are you spending your time? How are you spending your money? Where do you put your best work and effort? Is it building your kingdom or his? Because if it's about Christ, then you are going to serve others through love. This command motivates us to practice loving service. Well, today we've examined these three motivations that drive us to be servants of unconditional love. We've seen the call, the caution, and the command. And while Valentine's Day might be known as the day of love, the one day a year where love is celebrated and practiced, thankfully we as Christians can choose to let the love of Christ motivate us to serve others all year round, to be servants of unconditional love. Amen? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word. 
Lord, it is convicting because I, we don't naturally serve others. We don't naturally serve you. And our affections naturally turn toward us, our pleasures, our delights, our things. And so, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us just the, the conviction in our hearts to do something about it. That if your Spirit has convicted us through the power of your Word in any way, where we are allowing our freedom in Christ, our Christian liberty to be used as a place where the enemy has set up, that you would give us the grace and the humility to repent of it and to do what Ephesians 4, 22 to 24 says, to put it off and put it on the righteousness of Christ. Lord, let this church be known as a church that doesn't just preach about love, that doesn't just talk about loving service, but let this church be known as a church that does loving service because we love you. Thank you for loving us first. Thank you for giving us the gospel. It's in the precious name of Christ we pray. Amen.